back to the veterinary viewfinder. This week, the declaw debate. We've got an expert who's going to tell us everything about declawing and how it impacts our practice and profession. Welcome back to the Veterinary Viewfinder, the podcast that tackles the toughest topics in veterinary medicine. And this week, we are tackling perhaps one of the most contentious and debated issues we face, and that is declawing. And today, we have got an incredibly special expert guest, and I can't wait to introduce you. But first, as always, I am your host, Dr. Ernie Ward. I'm registered veterinary technician, Becky Mosser. I am so, so, so thrilled to be able to introduce you to a good friend of mine and colleague, Dr. Margie Shirk from Canada. And many of you know her. She is a specialist in feline medicine. She has not only been one of the pioneers of feline specialty practices across the world, but she is one of the most prolific writers and editors and outspoken advocates for everything cats. And this week, we're going to be talking about some tremendous news that she was an important, essential part of that happened in British Columbia, Vancouver area regarding declaws. Thank you, Margie, for being with us today. It is my pleasure indeed, Ernie, to be doing this with you and with Becky. Uh, tell us a little bit about where you grew up and you know, where you went to veterinary school, sort of that little stuff. Uh, I, I grew up in Toronto, uh, in, uh, in Toronto, Ontario, uh, and went to school, uh, went to university first at the University of Toronto, and then you did my uh, DVM at the University of Guelph, the Ontario Veterinary College. Um, I'd always wanted to do ethology, uh, so uh, the study of behavior, such as uh, my, my, my role models were Conrad Lawrence and Jane Goodall, uh, and uh, sort of stumbled into veterinary medicine. Well, tell us about that stumble, though, because that's, that's an important lesson for a lot of people. I was actually, you know, in zoology, and in studying zoology, one of the labs, physiology labs we were doing, uh, had uh, cockroach legs, uh, uh, disarticulated, dead, disarticulated <laughs> cockroach legs. And in... Um, that, that's actually my wife's nightmare. Like what you just said there <laughs> would send my wife in a panic. So Poor disarticulated Poor cockroach Laura. legs. So anyway. Well, I so. apologize to her. So yeah, so these disarticulated cockroach legs and I was just <laughs> fooling around whilst people were doing what they were supposed to in the lab. And I attached some, uh, uh, some alligator forceps that were attached to the spines on cockroach legs that uh, on this leg and uh, noticed that at the at, it was attached to an oscilloscope of some sort and it started, the oscilloscope started firing when I spoke or clapped or walked uh, and uh, checked the connections, grabbed a different leg, checked a, a different oscilloscope, all this sort of thing. And it turns out that the spines or what it appeared to be was that the spines on cockroach legs are actually a hearing organ. And so we've got some, I, went to my TA and went and he was really excited and he went to the prof and we got all kinds of different at recorded animal sounds like elephants they didn't respond clearly if an elephant was around they'd just be squished um bird song they fired like crazy to different bird songs and and uh so really you know kind of interesting and they thought I should study this and I thought that's a little too weird for me. Um, <laughs> while I absolutely can get interested and enthusiastic about anything and, and could very much, very well have become the specialist in some 
Cockroach legs. Trans- yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I thought, yeah, and the op- and but I'd also been, uh, you know, spent my whole life shoveling. Um, uh, dare I use the word? Uh, uh, well, I won't. Uh, shoveling manure in horse barns and and the like for uh, all of my growing up years, as many girls do. And and so I thought, there's got to be an in between here, something not quite so esoteric, but something a little um, um, more esoteric than uh, shoveling manure. So. Uh, that's when I apparently, according to everybody, they always knew I'd be a veterinarian. As far as I knew, it had never occurred to me. But so I applied and was very, very surprised and, and glad that I got in on the first go. So, well, and I appreciate you sharing that story, Margie, because one of the things that I have always found intriguing about you is the fact that you are incredibly intellectually curious. And it goes back to those lab days. And, you know, I knew a little bit about this story. And I, and I love that fact that, you know, it, it has led you here today. And we're going to actually be talking about something that, that is almost a direct extension, if you kind of think about it. And and the, rea- the reality is you're in, you're an intensely observant person. And you're also the type of individual who says, why? What if? And you've never, in my you know, knowing you all these years, I've never seen you for one second shy away from the hard questions. And I really appreciate that. It's a lot easier for me in my um, professional realm to draw a line and to be really have things be, uh, I've, I'm a lot more courageous professionally than I am personally. Let's put it that way. Well, okay, I, I, that's fair. But you, you're on the east coast of Canada. You're graduating from Guelph in this Toronto area where you've grown up. But then after graduation, you decided to take off for another part of the world. I moved to British Columbia. I wanted to be where I could see the mountains every day because seeing the mountains helps me realize how small I am and how irrelevant all of my problems are in the scheme of things. Wow. So I drove west, and I actually did my last two weeks of vet school at an externship in Saskatoon, uh, the Western Veterinary College, and then kept going after that until I until I hit the water, pretty much. Actually, that's not quite true. It was the interior <laughs> of British Columbia. Did mixed animals for some time because I wanted to do dairy, uh, which I, I did, uh, dairy health, and was doing, you know, dairy and llamas and that sort of thing, and then decided, because I've never really wanted to do small animal medicine. It all seemed far too anthropomorphic and not respectful enough of just observing and respecting and honoring who and what each creature is, each species is, and, you know, honoring their behaviors rather with small animal medicine, always companion animal medicine, it always seemed like we were, you know, dressing them up and putting bows on them and painting their nails and things like that, (laughs) essentially making them surrogate children. And to me, that always seemed extremely rude. I guess I don't know what other, what else to say. And so for me, as, as a, and that's, I think comes from my interest in observing and behavior and the fact that I just find um, I have a huge respect for, for life and for um, each individual. I would never try and change a person to suit me. I would rather understand why they are the way they are. Oh, yeah. You're a very authentic person. So now you've you've made it to beautiful British Columbia where you can see the mountains and, and enjoy and, and, and actually reflect back on the meaning of life. And then you decided to 
take on feline medicine at a time, I might add, when nobody was doing this. I mean, because this is in the mid 80s. Thanks for dating me. Um, <laughs> so I was uh, actually at Barb Stein did have a, a, the Chicago Cat Clinic at that at that time, but I was mm -hmm. I'd never heard of a cat practice that just seemed. I, I worked at the um, uh, I, I moved to Vancouver uh, for you know personal growth reasons, and then I. Um, went to, uh, I practiced at the uh, BCSPCA and at the hospital there and really learned an awful lot about humans. And it's actually there that I learned to love people um, rather than just see them as accessories to the creatures I loved <laughs> and I love wanted that. to care for. And so I really learned to love and admire I guess would be the sort of sense of wonder about about people and that was uh, uh when I was there I mean I just couldn't believe even though the SBCA way back then in 84 uh, had long had a separate cat ward and a separate dog ward everything's tiled and sterile and all this kind of stuff and so there was barking going on and as dogs do when they're um kenneled and, and frightened or whatever uh in a in a hospital and i was doing surgery one day and thinking these dogs the parking is driving me freaking crazy <laughs> and i and i thought wow if that's my experience what must it be like to be a prey animal a prey of a dog in that environment and i started to think it'd be kind of like uh and again i pardon the analogy but kind of like being um, having a Palestinian and uh, an Israeli in the same hospital ward, both war wounded and expecting them to get better. And I right. sort of thought, this is not a place of wellness. This is a place of processing bodies rather than healing. And so that was really impactful for me where I thought cats need their own space. And that's why I you know, going to the bank, et cetera. They thought I was crazy. Colleagues thought, well, that's a lovely idea, dear. But um, I remember a, a, a veterinarian I was doing relief work for who was an absolutely charming uh, person. He said, well, that's lovely, but, um, you know, 40% of our patients are cats. So what are you going to do for the other 60%? Wow. And I just couldn't understand that that was apparently one of those huge paradigm shifts yeah. that he wasn't able to comprehend at that moment that I, because I, I just sort of sputtered and I said, um, a hundred percent of my patients are going to be cats. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so anyway, so that was back in, I opened the practice. I started, I did house calls for part of a year while I was getting things ready with the, with the practice and learned some of the, um, some of the pluses and some of the minuses about doing house call practice uh, for cats and, and then shifted. Uh, and then by 86, my practice was open. What's an example of a, of a minus? Mm. You really want me to go there? Okay. <laughs> Just briefly. Okay. So I think that um, again, from a behavioral perspective, while of course it's very scary for cats, for, for most cats, and that's something we're also trying to work on uh, uh, educating cats and their people uh, in how, and, and veterinary clinics in educating people um, in, in making getting to the clinic less frightening and the, and being in the clinic that, that the 
clinic environment is less frightening and stressful for cats. The um, once the cat goes home and has there's been several hours or maybe in some cases even days of recovery, then they're safe again. To what I've found and what I worried about being in the home environment was now their inner sanctum, now their safe place had been invaded. And could they trust, you know, next time the pizza delivery guy rang the doorbell or anybody came or went, was their home safe? Wow. Could it be that person again who was going to sit with them as lovingly as possible in a, in their own low stress environment? Were we invading that their safe space? Wow, I'm going to have to unpack that. That's a really interesting thought, and you know, obviously, none of us can adequately answer. But thanks for sharing that. But it is that love of cats that has led you to this next debate, and. Ever since I have known you, you have not been shy about being anti-declaw. You have made no qualms about it. You think that professionally we should ban it, that you don't even think the AVMA or the CVMA has gone far enough, right? I mean, I think back in, what, 1415 when the it was designated as amputation, you were, you know, I remember you saying things like, you know, hey, this is one good step, but it's not what we need to do. So you have led this fight. And... Just bring us up to speed before we get back into why. What has happened recently in British Columbia, Vancouver? Uh, as of Tuesday, so three days ago, uh, declawing... And we're recording as, this on May 11th. So thank you. Yes, yeah, so since the 8th of, of May, um, the practice of declawing has been banned in the province of British Columbia. The important thing there is that it was the College of Veterinarians of BC that has implemented this ban. Um, it's To give you some of the bit of the background, the um, it, it, uh, Dr. Uh, Jenny Conrad, uh, who founded the PAW Project, she was successful quite some years ago now uh, in implementing or, or encouraging a number of municipalities in the state of California to uh, ban decline in those cities. Right. Those That was an initiative. Uh, and then subsequently, uh, as of November 12th, I believe it was, of last year, uh, 2017, it was banned in the city of Denver. Mm -hmm. um, the issue there is that those bans have, have been um, instituted by city officials, which I think is, uh, while the end result is from my point of view, favorable for cats. It is, um, and, and humanity or humaneness, it is being initiated by or, or driven and implemented by um, city officials, by elected non-veterinary yeah, By outside people. forces, right. Yeah, this is and a problem. Yeah. I think this really is because, and, and just recently, a couple of weeks ago, the state of California did, uh, uh, did not uh, implement a statewide ban. Oh, like, um, but before that, sorry, in December, on December 12th of 2017, the province of Nova Scotia on the east coast right. of uh, Canada 
was the first province where the Nova Scotia Veterinary Medical Association banned this procedure. Now we're the second province, so that's the entire province, not just the city of Vancouver. And again, it's been driven by the veterinarians. I think this is absolutely crucial because if we are to be, the, the general public uh, views us as they should, as being the bearers or the, the, the protectors of animals. And if we are the protectors of animals, we should not be the ones fighting this. We should be the ones leading the way. I mean, how horrible is it that veterinarians in, and again, I'm not being dis, I do not mean to be or sound disrespectful of the veterinarians in, in California or New Jersey or New York where these things are also being debated, that they are fighting their state legislatures um, because they don't want somebody outside of the profession to tell them what they can or cannot do. To them, I say, lead the charge. Right. Lead the right. charge. That's what the, the public... We have the public trust as animal welfare advocates. And to not lead this and to grasp it, you know, if we want to be in charge of what we do and don't do, that's what we need to, we need to lead that. And people say, well, you can't tell me what to do in my practice, and yada, yada, you don't tell me how to scrub or which anesthetic agents I should use or which blah, 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 this sort of thing. Um, uh, and and that, that's fair enough. But this is far deeper than that. This is like saying it's acceptable or not acceptable to use a guillotine on somebody to euthanize them. Right. Right. And, and Margie, just for the sake of our listeners who aren't as familiar with the debate, what are the reasons that you believe our profession should be leading the charge against declawing? For me, it's more of an, an ethical one uh, rather than, uh, but there certainly is science as well. And people have been arguing that, well, we don't have enough, A, um, if I don't do it, the guy down the road will do uh, If I don't do it, the cat will be surrendered uh, because they're scratching the furniture. If I don't do it, the cat will be surrendered because uh, somebody in the house is on, is immunosuppressed, or uh, there's a child possibly who has autism or whatever right. reason that they don't want that they don't want somebody scratched or the furniture scratched. And if I don't do it, it'll be done down the road by somebody who won't do as good a job. How arrogant an attitude is that? Um, <laughs> the, uh, they won't use as good an analgesic protocol. They won't use as good a surgical protocol, etc. I am doing the cat and their people good by uh, performing this to the very best of, of my abilities. Um, they'll also, uh, my argument is, um, who gives us the right? Who gives me as a human the right to amputate the distal part of somebody's fingers, toes, whatever you want to call them, the distal digit, um, or phalanx rather, uh, of, of, of that are perfectly healthy? We don't go around de- speaking, removing the vocal cords of children because they're noisy, although sometimes you'd like to I, <laughs> jump in there. <laughs> but, but Margie, getting back to this, because, you know, it is around amputation, which the AVMA mm -hmm. in 2015 or so designated this procedure as, you know, so it's it's an amputation, like taking off a, a humerus, right? Um, 
Here's the issue. We don't understand the the pain consequences because, you know, we've, we've had Robin Downing on our show before and we've talked a lot about this. So there's phantom pain that's real. I mean, to speak to that a little bit, because I think sometimes as veterinary professionals, we kind of want that evidence. We're like, OK, get it. Ethics. But there's sort of some variation on ethics and you're, you know, unethical is my fine. I mean, so talk a little bit about the science. Well, I, I, I will, but I'm going to, because you mentioned Robin, and perhaps she used this analogy, and it's an excellent one. Uh, it's her, her analogy. I take it from her. And I don't think the ethics is something to be downplayed, because um, uh, it, it, her, her, what I've heard her say is um, none of us condone rape, but if we don't, but there's better ways of being raped than other ways. That's total and absolute nonsense is so saying that there's a better way to declaw when declawing inherently is not okay is 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 it it makes no sense regardless of of science now speaking to the science and speaking to the the um concept of phantom pain people will argue um we don't have and and it's true we know that for some individuals uh, who have had their fingers or leg or arm amputated, they experience phantom pain. Not all individuals do. So presumably it is the same for cats. The, and this is why, I mean, many people say, well, my cat that was, that, who was amput, who had, who was declawed, never seemed to show any pain. They acted completely normally. To which I would say, they may or may not be experiencing pain. It is extremely difficult to tell, especially with cats, if they are in pain. So perhaps, so there too, we are flawed. And this, this actually goes back a little bit to my, to my history as well. The first paper I wrote, the first study I did when I was in, I published in JAVMA in uh, 1994, 95, something like that, was using the transdermal fentanyl patch in cats just to see whether we could achieve serum levels of, of, of fentanyl. And that was, you know, now thankfully we've got many other options, but it was, we really didn't, I've always been concerned about undetected pain in cats. And we know how very difficult it is to assess pain in cats because they are prey animals and they are solitary survivors and therefore must hide their pain at all costs um, so that they're to, to reduce their vulnerability. Um, so we have some, some, so there's, I mean, uh, uh, Dr. Nicole um, uh, uh, Martel Martin published a, a very nice paper. It just actually came out in print this month or last month in April, rather, in the Journal of Feline Medicine and Surgery. It was online uh, a year ago, uh, EPUBD, uh, on the long-term effects as far as uh, uh, pain and mobility and behaviors in cats who had been declawed. She looked at uh, a large, you know, a decent number of um, cats who had uh, been declawed and not declawed in shelter and uh, at like equal numbers and also uh, declawed and not declawed in homes. And she had, uh, and she went back to look at their behavior histories um, from uh, preceding years uh, since they had been declawed and found that there were more aberrant behaviors uh, uh, and uh, uh, therefore, and, and some, many 
of these cats were relinquished because of these behaviors subsequent to their being declawed. I don't have the paper in front of me, so I'm not giving you the, the I can't give you the actual stats on that. Um, that said, also, uh, in uh, five of the, um, there's some data that's been collected in five of the California cities in where the ban was passed, you know, almost a decade ago now, that in these uh, cities, looking at the relinquishment rates or intake rates in shelters of cats uh, five years prior to the ban and five years following the ban, and the argument one of the arguments or concerns being, well, if we don't declaw cats, they'll be relinquished to shelters. Right. And what was uh, found was that there was actually a decrease. Now, we can't say that decrease was strictly because the cats had been declawed, or had not been declawed, rather. But there wasn't an increase. But there right. wasn't an increase. Right. There wasn't right. an increase, because all kinds of other things were being undertaken as right. well. So what we can say is there wasn't an increase. And it could be that the other things that were being undertaken um, outweighed the uh, outweighed the um, effects of of uh, not the decline of the declaw ban, but we don't know that. So <clears throat> we know that that you know uh, certainly with the uh, the work that um, Doctor uh, that that Nicole and and, and um, uh, Jenny and others have done at, with rebuilding it at. And, and Kelly Saint-Denis, who you also know in Ontario, uh, in going back and, and correcting the surgery. A lot of, a lot, a lot of these cats who have been declawed, whether by guillotine, scalpel, or laser, remnants of P3 remain. And <clears throat> so to which people will say, well, we have to do better surgical technique to get rid of those remnants of P, the, the P3. Uh, but again, I... I say, who gives us the right to chop off perfectly healthy body bits on from um, from perfectly healthy cats? Uh, so the argument on that I've heard to counter that is, well, we remove it, it is a cat's need. It's part of their normal behavior to scratch. They need it to mark surfaces. They need it to to stretch and just feel good. You could see how good they feel. And yes, they, they will still perform a, a facsimile of that behavior without, with amputated feet. But they also, uh, it, people will also argue that it's a natural right for to be able to reproduce and we have no qualms in spaying or castrating cats. That's different because the result of, um, of spaying and castrating, if we don't spay and castrate, we have thousands upon thousands upon thousands of cats who do not have, who, who are not cared for, who die, who suffer, who, etc. all these, um, all of these other other aspects. So if we could, if we had other ways where we could, if all we did were tie their tubes and, uh, you know, and do vasectomies and they could still they could still, um, copulate, uh, fine. But then there too, you know, the, from the science, we'd say, well, breast cancer, <laughs> prostate cancer, reproductive cancers, etc. So you can't have it both ways. The, 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 the truth of it, the, the truth of it is, um, pet population control is extremely, extremely important for the health of the entire population as well as the individual. Um, when we're on the other hand, when we're talking about partial digital amputation, that is 
in no way, shape, or form a, has a, a good thing for a cat. Yeah, and I think one thing that I hear you saying is so important is to like debunk those myths that we lean so heavily on, like, oh, well, I'm just afraid that they will get, uh, you know, a backyard declaw job, or I'm afraid that they'll start to get surrendered. And so, you know, there's evidence out there that shows that that's not actually what's happening. And we need to just get away from making excuses. Now, one thing I've seen a lot over the last probably 10 years or so is this shift in mentality where more and more new veterinarians are coming out of school very uncomfortable with this. They've talked more about ethics as they've come through school. And declawing is always, I'm, you know, a, a heavy topic when they have these ethic portions of their education. But how do you encourage new veterinarians coming out into the industry and support staff members who also, you know, have a struggle with this, but get into a clinic where this is something that's still performed, but they have an ethical dilemma and an ethical aversion to this? How do you help facilitate that conversation with their um, associate or managing or owning veterinarian who's saying these procedures need to get done? How do they navigate that? Um, a great, uh, great question, Becky. Thank you. I, the, um, mm, so we can all have a personal line and unless somebody is holding a gun or a knife to my head or throat, as it were, <laughs> or to, to that of, you know, another person, you cannot make me do something that I have um, uh, that I feel is is wrong, uh, and it's a question of, and this too is where having a ban in effect it gives people the ability to. So like for me, it's never been an issue. I just drew a line in the sand and said, "This clinic, we don't declaw." End of right. story. And 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 that was actually really great for business, by the by. I know you'll get to that, Ernie, later, I'm sure. But um, to, as to what you're asking, Becky, is I think that when people know that there is a, a ban in place, they can exhale. They no longer feel that they have this, there's this tug of war of their conscience versus their feelings of obligation and what they need to do because they work for this person in their practice and therefore sh should do what they want. Um so I think that respectfully, uh, I mean, I had this um, um, happen to me early on after I graduated in, in my first year, and I just said, hmm, sorry, that's not something I do. Right. And it was simply that solid. It wasn't apologetic. It wasn't belligerent. I, I don't think. I, I don't think I came across. It was simply a knowing. That's not something I can I can do. Yeah. If you're listening today and you're an associate and you're in this situation, I'm in a complete agreement with Margie. It's just refuse to do it. Now, whether or not you take the next step of leaving that clinic, you know, that's that's a much more complex issue and, you know, certainly not something that we would cover in this podcast. But the reality is you don't have to do this. If you believe strongly that you shouldn't be doing whatever, you know, in your practice, I think at some point you do have a, a personal ethical and moral obligation to say, nope, this is what I stand for. Because if you don't, Margie, it is a slippery slope from there, is it not? Mm, yeah, I think so. And it's a matter of respecting yourself and respecting your beliefs too. It's just like, right, I hear you. And I respect your right to have a different opinion than mine. 
but I request that you respect my right to have a different opinion than yours. And I can't do this and sleep well at night. Right. Becky, what do you think too? Like, let's say you're now a veterinary nurse and you're in an environment where the boss, the owner declaws, but you don't, and maybe an associate doesn't. Like, how do you feel from your perspective as support staff? Do you feel like you should be excused from, let's say, prepping those procedures or participating in any way? Yeah, like that's, I guess what I was kind of asking, because I feel like this is a huge problem for a lot of support staff members. They don't want anything to do with this. And I can tell you, we don't talk about it in school. At least Mm -hmm. I didn't, you know, so the first time I ever saw this out of practice, I was like, oh my gosh, like I can't believe this is actually what we're doing. And, and, and I was, I really felt just like in shock of processing that whole thing. And it was something I hadn't like anticipated because we didn't even talk about it in school. So yeah, I think that as a support staff member, it's the importance of understanding your clinic culture before you get there. It's what I always harp about in saying that find a clinic that supports your belief. And I know that sometimes it's hard. It's like I have to work for a living and I don't have but two or three practices to choose from. They're all old school vets. They all do this. And, you know, like I get that. But then, you know, can you help to persuade? Mm. Can you have an honest conversation about how this makes you feel and why you shouldn't feel like you have to be a part of it. But then at the same time, it goes back to Dr. Margie's argument of if we do this in clinic as a veterinary nurse or veterinary technician, I know I can keep this client or this patient as comfortable as possible, um, reduce the chances of infection as much as possible, try to identify indicators of pain as much as possible. So by participating, I do the best I can for this patient who this is going to happen to no matter if I participate or not. And that is a really hard place to fall. Yeah. And that, and Becky, that still is, that still is, I don't condone rape. So we'll do rape as best as we will do a better form of rape. And that's, and I think that, and I think that that is, you're selling your soul and you can't live that way and do a good job at the rest with everything else. So I created a, a series of, um, uh, role-playing conversations to have and they are um, uh, they these these are questions the common questions that are asked by clients these can be used then within the um, uh, and the arguments that that clients or veterinarians or support staff may have as to why they should declaw and these are answers to each of those those queries and and ways to counter those those uh, so they can be used either directly as is tailoring them to your own personal language style uh, on the phone with people or they could be used as role playing within a staff meeting they could be used um, you and your mirror so that you can counter somebody when they have one of these when they when they have one of these um arguments. Uh, And so I did that to try and give people tools. In addition, the AAFP, American Association of Feeling Practitioners, has some very nice scratching tools. Um, SIVA now has Feel a Scratch, um, so which is an absolutely brilliant uh, attractant. Uh, The behavioral, the whole concept of meeting environmental needs so that the scratching surface is placed uh, the appropriate type, a non, a non wiggly, like not a door hanger or any of these slidey type things that needs to be solid. Some cats prefer horizontal, some cats prefer vertical, some cats like both. It doesn't have to be a carpeted cat tree. Uh, it could, there's lots of other, other things. There are many, many options. And I think we just need to make tools available 
for um, clients, for cats, and for for um, the clinic personnel all to understand this. But I think above all, we need to stop for a moment, remember why we went into veterinary medicine, because we love animals. And somehow we graduate still, you know, we've learned how to take care of, but we've lost the caring for in the process. And somehow, and, and remember why we went into veterinary medicine. Right. And is this really what we want to be doing? And like, I'll grow some, you know, grow some backbone again. <laughs> I love that. And, you know, Margie, I think part of this also is a legacy because our generation of veterinarians, we came into, you know, well, when the baby boomers were doing all of these types of procedures. And so we sort of inherited that. I think now the newer generation doesn't have to, they don't have those, those attachments, you know, to those procedures or whatever. So I think moving forward, it's just like you said, this procedure stops one veterinarian at a time. And, mm. and, uh, and there has, to, we will quickly, I think, come to a time in the near future where not only is it banned, hopefully officially, regulatorily and, and legislatively, but also from a professional standpoint, we just don't do it. Yeah, I agree. I think that it is, it's, it's, if we're getting to that critical mass point now, again, I encourage, uh, I think that rather than it being you could go to jail because it's a civil offense if it's an ethical and moral choice by or ethical i should stick with and it's been made by the profession right. itself then um it's 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 a win all around we have just one 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 more thing there um we have uh the way i i went around doing this and i stand on the shoulders of those who have tried and failed, tried and failed, tried and succeeded, tried and failed before me is I did a three-pronged approach. I approached the, the College of Veterinarians, uh, like our regulatory body, self-regulatory body, um, I, who were, were not particularly receptive at that time, but I, kudos to them. They have taken the, the, the ball and taken the flag and led with it now. Um, I, I went to the, our colleagues, I emailed uh, uh, both the veterinarians as well as uh, the Veterinary Technician um, Association and asked them to forward my, my mail to, uh, emails to them. Uh, and then I approached the, the general public through social media, both on Facebook as well as a petition. And the petition that I posted was uh, actually garnered uh, over 91,000 signatures. My goal was 10,000. No way. My goal was 10,000. And so the, the um, you know, to get 91,000 signatures, and that was in under, uh, that was in, in, in uh, under three months. And that was, to me, I felt, I was being, I thought, felt that if the College of Veterinarians of British Columbia needed to feel that they weren't harming the profession or the individuals, uh, the you know professions, uh, the, uh, the individual veterinarians' revenue source. That they, uh, if they've realized how strongly the general public does not want this, you know, wants us to stop doing this, that that would give them a sense of confidence, and then by also recruiting and banding together colleagues 
um, it, it, you know, including, of course, our, our nursing teams, colleagues who uh, felt strongly that they didn't want this. It just became a large a mass of people to show to the to our um, regulatory body that you know what we don't really want this. Just make this silly thing. There will always be some outspoken voices who are still saying but you can't tell me what to do or you're taking away my revenue. Right. And, you know, to that, um, to that point, um, the, the revenue, uh, I when in the days gone by when we used Yellow Pages ads, we said, you know, do not, de no decline, uh, discuss behavior, blah, 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 sort of thing. And people, you attract those people. We attracted people because we didn't declaw. Right. And certainly yeah. other people who've stopped decline and uh, are, have, have said the same thing that people have flooded to them saying, oh, thank goodness you don't do this. Yeah. And I think that makes such a good point. It's about client education as well. We They follow our lead. And so there are clients out there who want this and there are clients out there who maybe have just always done this. And so I think it's an amazing thing to have tools in our toolbox for conversations, whether it's with staff or with clients. And I just thank you so much for this work that you're doing and leading this charge and, and really kind of bringing us back to the root of why this is such a big issue. Thank you so much. My huge pleasure. Margie, for people that are listening, where can they go to find out more? How can they get involved with helping you and just our profession? What's a good website? Well, uh, certainly the AAFP has good uh, scratching uh handouts and materials and how to educate people. Um, uh, there is, you know, the PAW Project. If people haven't seen the PAW Project movie, it's available on Netflix and you should watch it. Uh, it yeah. is, it, it's, it's, I think, powerful. a powerful piece. Very yeah. powerful. And um, the... I, I really, right now, that's what I would be thinking. Uh, they can certainly... Uh, 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 contact me um, uh, and uh, at, at, at hyper that's spelled h y p u r r at aol.com um, as a, I'm happy to send the, these talking points or um, training points and and any articles that we have um, Dr. Martel Moran's uh, paper uh, various other things that the article that talked about it being a medically unnecessary procedure, et cetera, et cetera. The CDC, uh, both, you know, the, the Center for Disease Control and cancer agencies also do not recommend declawing, uh, because rather using flea control monthly for a Bartonella uh, concern. And cats who are declawed are more likely to bite, and that's far worse, et cetera, et cetera, from a health perspective. Gosh, we could go on and on. Margie, you're going to have to promise to come back. There's so much other things I want to cover about your story. So please, please, please keep doing what you're doing, helping our profession be better. But most importantly, you are doing so much to impact the welfare of cats worldwide. So thank you so much. Thank you. You guys have heard what we have to say. Now we want to hear from you. If you'd like to know more about the declaw movement or the debate, then please hit us up in the in the comments below. We want to know if this is the type of content you like to hear. Would you like to have Dr. Shirk back again to talk more about this issue or some of the other fantastic work she does? We want to hear from you. Social media comments, hit us up. Don't forget to find us on Facebook and Twitter. And leave us a five-star review if that's how you feel about this podcast. We want to hear what you have to say. 
And when you leave us a review, it helps us make sure that we get this content out to more people. And please don't forget to click to subscribe so you don't miss one great episode of the Veterinary Viewfinder. Until next time. Bye. 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 Bye.